this morning, we are celebrating. We're celebrating new life in Jesus, and we are celebrating all that God is doing in and through Redeemer Fellowship. We're also remembering, as we participate together in this baptism, my hope is that you remember your own baptisms, how you felt that day, the joy, the anticipation. I also hope that you remember the significance of your baptism and the story that it told and continues to tell about the work of God in your life. Baptism is a public event. It's a celebration for the family of God to join in on together. It's also meant to be kind of humiliating. Being dunked into a pool of water in front of 100 people is not something we do every day. And to be quite frank, it is undignified. And, and we know that, right? Because coming up out of, out, of, out of a pool of water, typically we don't look like a Dove commercial, right? Like, that's not what happens. We look all disheveled. We're like, kind of like, our eyes are like, kind of like that. And, and it is humiliating. But, but the reality is that humility... It points to something, something beyond what we'll see taking place in the tank behind us. This morning, I'd like to walk us through what baptism is. We're kicking off a series where we're going to be digging into the DNA of our church. Who are we? What are we passionate about? What are the things that we are unwilling to bend on? And part of that discussion is going to be revolving around the mission of our church to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. And the waters of baptism, they serve as the starting line for that shared life in Christ. The Apostle Paul says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what it means to share in the life of Christ. And that's the story that baptism tells. So with that, we're going to jump into our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. You can look through, um, you can look at that in your programs, you can follow along in your Bible, or you can look at the screen that is behind us. But before we jump into the text, I want to zoom out a bit and provide a lit, little bit of context. So we're dropping into this story at the tail end of a sermon that the Apostle Peter was preaching following this watershed moment in the life and story of God's people. The Holy Spirit had just been poured out, and the moment was obvious. All the people were together. This is more than just the 12. There's, there's other people who have believed at this point. There was a mighty rush of wind, something that was tangible. Tongues as of fire descended on the people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they started speaking in languages that they did not know. Some were amazed at the miraculous work being done, while others blamed it on them all being drunk. And so Peter starts preaching. He told them that they couldn't all be drunk because it was 9 o'clock in the morning. Maybe some people might be drunk at 9 a.m., but not all the people are drunk at 9 a.m. But rather, what was taking place was the fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament book of Joel. 
He then recounted the story of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And after doing so, he looked at them and he said, I'm talking about the guy that all of you crucified. I'm talking about the one that you put to death. And here's where I want to spend a few minutes this morning. The literal truth that Peter is getting at is that the religious leaders, those present during this feast of Pentecost, they were the ones who conjured up this plan to have Jesus killed. But while there are those who are literally responsible for the death of Christ, it is a burden that all of humanity bears. It is a burden that all of humanity bears. Verse 36 says this in chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now I read that verse and I know what it means. The text is simply reiterating what it said back in verse 23 where it says this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The point that Peter is making is that the death of Christ, the crucifixion of our Lord, it was always God's plan. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But that doesn't remove the guilt from the responsible parties who carried it out. And while the responsible parties in our passage are those religious leaders present at the Feast of Pentecost and the lawless men who they used to carry out the murder of Jesus, my hope is that this morning, as we scratch at the surface of this text, that we start hearing, as we just sang, our own mocking voices calling out among the scoffers. Because it was our sin that held him there. This Jesus, whom all of us had a hand in crucifying. Peter wants all the house of Israel to understand this reality. But I believe Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, he wants all of us to understand this reality, that we are responsible for the death of the one whom God made Lord and Christ. Now, some of you might be sitting here wondering, why am I harping on this? Some of you might be asking why I'm trying to lay a guilt trip on everyone. That's not my goal. If you've been coming to Redeemer for any length of time, you know that I do not operate like that. The reason why I am so thoroughly laying out for us our culpability in the murder of Jesus is because, and this is so important, the more deeply we understand our sin, the more love and joy we will experience in receiving God's forgiveness. And that love and joy, the more we taste of it, the more we experience it, the more we'll want to display it to others. That's how it works. Love begets more love. Mercy begets more mercy. Compassion begets more compassion. Justice begets more justice. And when we look to the one who embodies all of these things in the most ultimate sense, and we entrust ourselves to that person, then it starts to flow through us like living waters, as the Bible talks about. 
I want to read you something from Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, it's going to be right up on the screen. And I'm going to read the entire passage. It's lengthy, but I think it's that important. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him because she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, meanwhile, right, he said this to himself. I don't know if you caught that in the text, right? He said it to himself, and, and Jesus perks up, right? That's just a little hint about who Jesus is, but neither here nor there. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. This wasn't exactly a Rubik's Cube, but... Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many... She got a whole bunch of them. Are forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And, and he just ignores that, right? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman of the city who was a sinner, she was most likely a prostitute. That's what that means. She couldn't have been more aware of her sin. It was right in front of her. She knew who she was. And it was her awareness, her deep understanding of who she was, coupled with the grace and acceptance shown to her by Christ that caused her to weep and humiliatingly throw herself at the feet of of Jesus. This woman was cut to the heart. She knew her sin. She was deeply acquainted with her sin, but she was also in the midst of experiencing the amazing grace of God in Christ. And her response, and if we look at the scene, similar to what we're going to see in a few minutes, it was humiliating. She's weeping. She's, she's pouring out uh, anointing oil all over this man's feet. She's kissing his feet, wiping his, like, like, this is a scene. This is not something that's just taking place in the corner. This woman is making a scene. Why? Because she's cut to the heart and so overwhelmed with what this man was doing for her. 
Can we track him with what's going on here? That's what the Holy Spirit does. When we're confronted with the depth of our sin, he causes us to be cut to the heart. Look at verse 37 with me. Now, when they heard this, when they heard that they were the ones culpable, responsible for the death of Jesus, the text says they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do you want from us? That word cut, it could be translated as pierced, stabbed, even gouged. It's used in some instances to communicate being stunned by something. There's an emotional and spiritual distress and sorrow that the text is trying to communicate to us. And they're hoping for a way to get out of it. They don't want to feel that anymore. They don't want to be experiencing that pain anymore. And so they cry out, brothers, what shall we do? What do you want us to do, Peter? Like, I get it. We're the worst. All right? How much more you want to lay it on us? Okay. We made a mistake, right? This is not an I'm sorry I got caught situation. It's not that. This is more like a, I didn't know what I was doing. Please tell me there's a way to make it right situation. And this tracks with the words of Jesus that he uttered from the cross back in, in, in Luke's gospel when he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know that you are in the process of making me Lord in Christ. So forgive them. And here we see that prayer. Now, this is just cool Bible reading, right? We see the prayer starting to be answered by God as these men who murdered Jesus, are cut to the heart, and now wondering, what in the world am I supposed to do? And so Peter responds. He says in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's simple. All you need to do is repent and be baptized. It's simple, but it's not that easy. It's simple, but it's not that easy. What Peter is saying to those listening and to us, he's speaking to us. And the reason why I know he's speaking to us, because verse 39 tells us that the promise is for them and for their children and for all who are far off. We're a part of both groups, the generations that followed those first believers and those who are far off, who make up all the families of the earth. And what he's communicating to us when he says repent is to know and understand that your sin, our sin, it's a cosmic offense. It's a cosmic offense that everything that we believe about the world, about Christ, about what is good and true, it has been shaped by all the wrong things. It's been shaped by all the wrong things. And when Peter says, repent from all that, he's saying, you got to change your mind and turn from that way of thinking. Because that way of thinking, that way of life, that worldview, it leads to death. It leads to death. Change your mind. 
Turn from all of it and entrust yourself. Pledge allegiance to, believe in the finished work of Jesus and know that when he says that your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit, it's a promise. And the God we serve is a promise-keeping God. The other night we were reading to our kids and we were looking at the story of Noah. And after reading the section where it says that God put a rainbow in the sky to remind him of his covenant, my youngest asked, but what if God forgets? Like a super innocent question. And it was really cool because it just gave us this opportunity to look at him and tell him, well, that's not who God is. He doesn't forget and he always keeps his promises. And the promise that is being uttered right here in this text. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, I think sometimes we, we have in mind this, this concept of, of repent, and we separate it from this concept of belief and faith. And we think they're two different categories. But in reality, to repent is to believe. To repent is to have faith, to entrust ourselves, to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. That's, they're both, they're two words to describe the same event. And God is saying, when you do that, when you entrust yourselves to Almighty God, to the, 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 the cross of Christ and his resurrection, look what happens. Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of this text. Peter also instructs us to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So there's two commands. Repent, believe, and trust yourself to, and be baptized. In other words, God has given us a sign or a symbol, a tangible and humiliating event to help us understand the spiritual realities taking place for those of us who repent, who believe, this good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it is. I'm going to open these doors in a few minutes, and there's a, a pool of water in there. It's warm, which is lovely. But the point is that when we go into those waters, we are, one, declaring to, to everyone in this room, we're following Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's an outward expression of something that's going on in here. And the humiliating part, see, this is cool. This is actually like really important for us to wrap our minds around. And, and, and I don't think most people talk about the humiliating part, but I think it's important. And the reason why I believe it's so important is because what it's doing, because this is like the, 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 the first step in our walk with Jesus, is it's setting us up for the life and the expectation that is before us. To follow Jesus, to pick up our crosses, to walk in faithfulness, repenting, 
and, and saying no to the worldview of, and culture that is permeating every single facet of human society and follow this narrow road, this other path, submitting to another king and a kingdom that is not of this world, that is, and, and many of us know this, is a humiliating experience as we walk through this life. And so it's setting us up for that. Not that we should intentionally be fools and, and humiliate ourselves as we walk through, you know, the public square. I don't think we have many public squares, but you know what I mean. But just simply the belief that we have that a man died, was buried, rose again, and then 40 days later floats up to the sky, and we're banking everything on that? Yeah, people are going to think we're crazy. So it sets us up. It's, it's, it's laying out the expectations, right? Like, and, and we like that. We like to know the expectations, right? Like, like a good teacher sets the expectations at the beginning. Right, Brian? They set the expectations. They let people know where we're going in, in class. Right? I'm working on that. I just started teaching. I'm working on that. But that's what a good teacher does. That's what a good communicator does. They set the expectations. That's what baptism is. It sets us up. It says, this is what you're getting into. Just so you know, back in the, ancient, in the ancient world, first century church, they did it naked. Yeah, that's really humiliating, right? <laughs> right? That's the point. That's the point. But there's more to it. I want to read a quote. It's a lengthy quote. I have it up on the, the screen by Christian theologian J.I. Packer. And he says it like this. He says, Christian baptism is a sign from God that signifies inward cleansing and remission of sins, spirit-wrought regeneration and new life, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as God's seal testifying and guaranteeing that one will be kept safe in Christ forever. Baptism carries these meanings because first and fundamentally, it signifies union with Christ, right? We talk about sharing in the life of Christ. That's, that's where we draw that from. Union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this union with Christ, it's the source of every element in our salvation. Receiving the sign in faith assures the persons baptized that God's gift of new life in Christ is freely given to them. At the same time, it commits them to live henceforth, I love that word, in a way, in a new way as committed disciples of Jesus, Baptism signifies a watershed point in a human life because it signifies a new creational engrafting into Christ's risen life. In other words, baptism is a picture of both the cleansing we receive when we repent of our sin by entrusting ourselves to Jesus and our participation in the death, burial, and one day when we are raised to new life in Christ. Those of you who are being baptized this morning, my prayer is that you were drawn to these waters because you too were cut to the heart over your sin, overhearing your mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. And in the same breath, I don't want us to stay in the cut to the heart part. Because in the same breath, my prayer is that we are filled to the brim with joy and love. Because in looking at the cross, 
that object of death and torture that all of us played a part in, we also see that in it, that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so in the cross, my hope, when we meditate upon the death of Jesus, when we think about and contemplate and study it and, and remind it of it, when we see a cross anywhere, that we are just so deeply impressed with the love that was lavished upon us, that while we were yet sinners, like while we were in the process of sinning, Christ died for us. And, and also what I love, the Bible talks about how that, that grace abounds, like grace overflows, grace like permeates a situation when there's sin present. Like, like wrap your mind around that, that when you are sinning, even now, if you are a Christian, like when you fumble the ball, when you are stuck in sin, when you are actually committing the sin that you are wrestling with, grace is abounding in that moment. Do you, like that's so helpful. That's so helpful. Because it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. See, when we're sinning, God's not sitting there. Jesus isn't sitting there saying, you idiot. I'm going to knock your teeth. Like, he's not doing It's not what he's doing. And it's funny, but it's true. It's true. What he's doing, he's coming alongside you saying, he's like, you don't, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You really don't have to live there. Like, come with me. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better path. You don't have to stay there. And, and he yells it louder when we're sinning, I think, right? Like, we know it. We know it. And, and he's putting his arm around us, like, like, like a good big brother does, right? He puts his arm around us and says, no, you don't need to do this. And then when you do it anyway... He doesn't just walk away and say, well, I tried. No, he pursues us even harder. This is what grace is. Grace is not you became a Christian one day and now you better not mess up. That's not grace. If that were grace, we're done. We're done. Jesus carries us along the way through the gift and sealing of the Holy Spirit of God. We have to believe that. We have to believe that. Now, for those of us here who have not yet been cut to the heart, or maybe you're experiencing that cutting as we speak, verse 40 has a word for you. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. In other words, repent and be baptized. Believe the good news of the gospel. Don't sit in your sin. Don't say that, I'll figure this out later on in life. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. While he is near, right? While he can hear us call out to him. That's the calling 
that God is putting upon you right now because it says in the scriptures that he desires that no man should perish, no woman should perish. Because he did not come to condemn and judge, he came to save. He came to seek and save the lost. So those of you, if you don't know Jesus, what I have just been talking about, that's the good news. And it might sound unbelievable. It might sound too good to be true. But the, but the scriptures say, taste and see. Taste and see. Put your chips in on something like this and see how God shows up. Says this in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you receive this word, if you believe the good news I'm telling you about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then you can count your soul among the 3,000 that were added on that day some 2,000 years ago. So if you're visiting this morning because someone close to you is being baptized, this is the story that they're devoting their lives to. Everything I just talked about. And I can tell you this, that their hope is that you too will one day devote yourself to this same story. That you too will repent and be baptized so that you too can experience the joy and love we saw overflowing in that woman of the city as she wept at the feet of Jesus. A love and joy that overflows into a life lived in loving both God and neighbor. This is what it means when we say that our mission is to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. It's a life that begins with repentance, with faith, with pledging allegiance to a king and a kingdom, a kingdom that doesn't make sense in this world, but a kingdom that when we entrust ourselves to it, stirs up love, joy, and peace within us. Love, joy, and peace that we have never experienced apart from knowing God. It's not a promise that life will be easy. Remember, it begins with this humiliating experience. But it is a promise that we will have Jesus, right? What did it say in that passage in Luke, right at the end? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's what the gospel promises. Peace with God. Peace with God and eternal life with him. And a life that is shaped by this kingdom, by the cross, so that others might see and know who God is. That is good news. And that's who we are as a church. That's what we believe. And that's what those who are walking into the waters of baptism believe. And so with that, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Cheryl to come up as we enter into communion. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace.
we thank you for those who are following you in obedience this morning and being baptized. I pray that all of us, as we witness this sign, as we witness this outward expression of this inward work that you have performed in the lives of these individuals who are being baptized, Lord, that you would stir in us, Lord. Stir in us a memory of when we too were baptized or stir in us a desire to follow you and to repent and, and enter into your family, Lord God. That's my prayer for this morning, Lord God. We love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.